electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the man who called this year's record run for stocks is back with his look ahead now for your money. We talk with Tom Lee, debate his outlook with our investment committee, and joining me for the hour today are Josh Brown, Jim Labenthal, John Nigerian, Brenda Vangelo is the CIO of Sandhill Global Advisors. Good to see everybody today. Let's begin with a check on stocks. Another new intraday high earlier today for the S&P. Same with the NASDAQ. It's 52nd of the year. That's right, 52 record highs for the Nasdaq this year, higher by one half of 1%. An incredible year for the tech trade. We know that. Let's welcome in FundStrat's chief market strategist, Tom Lee. He is back with us now. Tom, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the here and now first. You said yesterday in a note that the Santa Claus rally has begun right on cue. So you think we're going to have a nice little ramp between now and the end of the year that's intact? Yes. Yeah, I think. And I think Fed chairman's comments yesterday really sort of underscored that there's a lot of reasons for risk on to happen, including, you know, momentum, the seasonals. I also think COVID in a, in a way is also stabilizing and with the vaccine. So a lot of reasons to expect at least 3,800, probably higher before you're in. Okay, so that's at least 2% or so of, of where we are from now. Let's look ahead, if we could, because you have a very interesting perspective on 2021, almost a tale of two years, right? You have a first half scenario and then a second half. And the first half, which I find really interesting, you say, even though you're so optimistic, that stocks are going to have a 10% correction sometime in the first part of the year, maybe February to April. Why? Um, the market's got a pretty big overbought condition to work off. I don't think it's going to be an issue into year end. And I don't think it's really an issue in January. And I'm not necessarily worried about all the good things that could happen next year. But given the overbought situation, and if you look at other bull markets, usually by that 12th month, you have a pretty angry and painful correction so we think that starts in February to April, and that would take us to 3,500. I would be buying that pullback, but I do want people to understand it's going to make 2021 feel really difficult. Yeah, but you have one heck of a backloaded jump coming next year. If you're right, you say the S&P should rally 25% in the second half of 2021 to 4,300. Uh, that is pretty optimistic, a boom, some would say. Yeah, uh, you know, first of all, I think an economic boom should follow. Um, if anyone's looking at China, it, that's a template. I mean, China is going absolutely gangbusters. And we know there's a lot of pent-up demand. And on top of that, I think we're going to be looking at two conditions that really add hugely to risk, risk on or equity risk premium falling. One is the volatility should be dropping. You know, we averaged the third highest level of VIX in the history of the VIX in 2020. Every time you've had that elevated VIX, it drops it's pretty steadily over the next three years. I mean, I think we're talking sub 15 VIX within two years. And the second is negative real rates are going to be minus 6% next year. That's a real incentive to be acquiring real assets. And that's historically been very good for cyclical stocks. So I think that 
that triple combination takes us to at least 4,300 on the S&P, wow. probably higher. All right. We'll get back to, you know, where you think we should play this and, and how. Let's bring in the committee, though. Farmer Jim, I'm bringing you in first, OK, because you've been of late one of the more bullish committee members that we've had. Yet you're only looking for a 6% return next year, Jim, which frankly surprises me. Well, let, let me explain it because I, I am far more bullish than a 6% return. That return is a price return projection on the S&P 500. You can add a couple of percentage points in dividend to get to 8%. But Scott, I know I don't need to tell you, you'll tell me. I have a strong value tilt and what Tom Lee was just saying is what I believe. I think that you're going to see the classic early stage of an economic expansion that favors cyclical stocks. Um, I think that the rotation you've seen over the last three months is for real. Um, you know, there's been some discussion about financials, just as an example of, of, uh, of value stocks. And how can they possibly do well in the current environment? You have to remember the stock market looks forward a good six months. And what it sees is loan losses that are a heck of a lot lower than what's been reserved, possibly higher interest rates. But also the Fed probably six months from now is going to green light buy buy, buy excuse me, share buybacks. This is just one aspect of the value trade. So the S&P 500 may be up about 8% in total return next year, and you may say that's tepid. But for me as a stock picker, I'm really looking forward to a, a return that's much better than the S&P 500, not just because of the value overweight, but because I also agree with Tom that you are going to get a correction. I happen to think it's in January, just using historical precedent. Um, but that's something that I'm going to try to trade around. Hopefully I get that right. I could have a nice low teens year next year. And if that happened, that would be a great year. Your firm, though, is at thirty nine fifty for an S&P target next year relative to some of yes. the other targets that we just put up on the wall. You're on the lower end of the spectrum. I've got thirty eight hundred for B of know, A and City. I've got thirty nine for Morgan Stanley. So you come in right after that. Then it starts to ramp. Barclays goes to four thousand. BMO goes to forty two. TL and Fundstrata are at 43 along with Goldman. And then J.P. Morgan right now is at the top of the heap. They go to 4,400. I mean, with everything falling into place, I almost feel like it would be disappointing next year, Farmer Jim, if we didn't get a double-digit return in the market with all of the pent-up demand you figure exists and you vaccinate people and you get out and you rock and roll. Yeah, I, I don't mind going into the year being accused of being conservative on my projections. More importantly than that, though, is how am I positioned and how am I positioning my clients? Make no mistake, and I've been saying it for a couple of weeks, you've alluded to it. I am very much risk on. If I very much risk on. If, if I am somehow surprised to the upside, then God bless it. That'll be terrific. Um, but, you know, I, I read the tea leaves, as I just said, 8% total return. You add to that a value overweight that we have, and you're going to be in double digits pretty easily. Tom Lee, is it, is it possible that, that you, you're too optimistic? I mean, that on paper, everything looks good, but a lot can happen. Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot can go wrong, Scott. I mean, 2020, even though we're exiting on a good note, is a tough year. I mean, a really horrifically bad year for you know people's lives. Financial markets came out of this okay. I think it's going to feel similar in 2021. I think that the economy is going to do better, and hopefully we start to see it in employment. But I think that that sort of tension is going to make it a challenging year. So I, I'm still also very nervous about what can go wrong, and I'm watching for what can go wrong. But stocks are still really cheap relative to credit. 
if you got negative real rates and a volatility falls, these are real things that drive flows into financial assets. And so I, I think there's a lot of tailwinds for PE to go up. Yeah, Brenda, what do you think of Tom's prediction? Yeah, I think one of them that's kind of buried within your note, Tom, is that the the duration, you think, of the shift to value and how long that can continue. And you kind of allude to the fact that it's been 13 years of underperformance. We could go into a cycle where there's 14 years of value performance, uh, outperformance versus growth. And I would question that personally because I just think the world has changed so much versus previous economic cycles. Um, and that uh, innovation and technology within technology and healthcare has just become such a more important part of our economy. So I'd question you, why, why is, that, is that your view? And um, if so, why do you think it could last that long? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, re- it's really going to be a question of source of earnings. If inflation expectations normalize, because for the last 15 years, people have been deflating, meaning inflation expectations have dropped. That means companies don't make money from their balance sheet. They make money from cutting cost or from unit growth. But in a world where we think inflation risks are either flat or start to rise, and the break-evens are telling us this is what we should start seeing, companies will make a lot more money from balance sheet, um, whether it's inventory or from cash or from leverage. That really favors companies that are cyclical, and and that would really lead to, I, I think, some scary growth rates for earnings from cyclical companies. I think that's the surprise that would drive this sort of 14-year cycle is that we could see industrials post several back-to-back years of 30% earnings growth. And then, of course, they'd re-rate. Wow. John Ajarian, um, I'd like you to weigh in because you bring a unique perspective in the, in the way that you're viewing the market, both short-term and long-term, as you, as you told us yesterday. Thinking about lightening up all across your portfolio, in fact, you, you've done that well, I, th- I think your comment yesterday was, you know, raising cash everywhere at this point, cautious about the near term. But what about Tom Lee's outlook? OK, you may have a little bit of a pullback coming into the beginning part of the year, but then you start to ramp up pretty well. Yep. Yeah. And, and Scott, um, my uh, outlook without knowing that Tom Lee felt this exact way when I read your note, Tom, this morning, I loved it because I love when I'm on the same page with somebody who's as bright and accurate about the market as you have been and as you are. So with that said, Scott, um, as I've been lightening up, I've also in another Tom Lee trade, which is Bitcoin. Um, As I've coming out of cash, I'm not just going to let it sit there. Um, I put it into Bitcoin from, as we told our folks on our uh, roundtable, we started buying on the dip from 19,000 back to 16,000 I turned a lot of the cash that we had into Bitcoin and have been buying it all the way up to 20 yesterday. And now today, you know, it explodes to almost silly time numbers. 23.7, I think, was where it topped out mm-hmm. so far today. So what I'm looking at, Scott, is the real possibility that we do see some sort of a 10% correction, whether it's January, February. That's the time frame I'm looking at. And I want to be able to commit capital back into some of the best stocks at that time. I don't have that crystal ball to know which ones are going to fall enough to make it really interesting to me. I'll tell you the ones I hold the most are the ones that I think during the dark times of January and February are going to still be in demand. And that is Apple. You already heard about the 96 million handsets that they've ordered, um, which is much bigger than their last round over at Apple. I think Microsoft, I mean, it doesn't have to be the shutdown stocks that Tom talked about 
uh, back in March. But those tech stocks, Scott, I think are still going to be focused for me. I don't know that they're going to get the big whoosh downward. But whatever does get the big whoosh downward, that's where I'll be looking to commit more capital uh, after I've taken these profits now. Okay. Which brings me to Josh Brown, who has a lot of stocks hitting new highs today in, in his book. Um, all right, Josh, I mean, put all of this into perspective into your own view about sort of where we are and where you think we're going next year, whether we're about to have a, a Tom Lee boom into this second half of 2021. I, ho- I, hope, Tom's, I hope Tom's right. And I think uh, talking about a February to April 10% correction is entirely within uh, what the historical data tells us. We typically have one every year, at least one. So I don't think anyone should be like freaked out about it or shocked by it. But when we are in that 10% down hole, people will forget that that's because we were up 20% leading into it. So people have very short memories. Um, Tom, said, Tom used the word, and you'll, you'll have to excuse me. I, I'm trying to get the image out of my mind of uh, Farmer Jim being, quote, uh, what, what did we say, risk on, extremely risk on? <laughs> I picture this guy uh, on his tractor, shirtless, with a bullwhip and a bottle of gin. Um, but I, I think Tom used the word You know I overbought. like my chainsaw, Josh. Um, but, all right. Listen, I want to be there for that. That's all I'm trying to tell you. So I think, and so I want to define what overbought is, and I want to get Tom's take on this. So people use that term typically, that, people who don't know technical analysis, they say something's overbought. That's code for, I screwed up, I didn't buy it, I missed it, right? Same way they use bubble. A bubble is when other people are making money and you're not. Okay, so overbought. But statistically speaking, we are kind of overbought here. 90% of New York Stock Exchange names are above their 200-day. That's only happened five times in history, according to uh, my guy Suttmeyer at Bank of America. And the, when you hear that stat, you say, overbought, uh-oh. But the thing is, every one of those, almost every one of those situations, the last one was 2009, occurred when the economy was coming out of recession. So 1983, 1975, um, 2009, that you should have a market that gets overbought when you're coming out of a rut because so many stocks had already had so much damage. So I think it's the good kind of overbought from that perspective. And I don't think just because so many stocks are working, you want to be the knee-jerk contrarian. It's like, oh, this is as good as it gets. I want out. Because historically, that's not been a great time to sell. Tom, do you want to build on that a little bit so people understand what you mean when you say overbought? Yeah, Josh, uh, I'm going to agree with you because, you know, just because stocks are up, it's not telling us they have to oscillate and go back down. I mean, stocks are signal, and I, I think for 2020, they've been telling us we're going to get a pretty vigorous economic and earnings recovery, which now looks like it's been a correct call. I think the reason... Uh, I'm using overbought, and I, I, you're right, maybe I should come up with another word, is that stocks actually do need to pause and refresh. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's how you regain the energy, but it's also how cash comes off the sidelines, because it, it is really difficult for people to take that $5 trillion, about $4.5 trillion cash, and put money in at the top. That's what's really waiting for a pullback, and I think that it could be quite shallow. Maybe it won't be 10%, but when that happens... You know, we, we haven't exhausted uh, those who can own equities, and we haven't exhausted how equities could re-rate. So I, I'm not necessarily bearish, but you're right. Overbought is maybe not the right word. I well, think stocks just get extended. I mean, it, it, it brings me back, or at least sort of makes me think, 
of the Greenspan thing, right? Irrational exuberance. I mean, there are a lot of things that looked irrationally stretched that went up another four years, Tom, until yes. eventually the, the bubble burst. Now, there are some signs in today's market that make people think back to 99 and, and 2000. I don't know how you feel about some of the most recent IPOs, some of the lofty price to sales ratios that are out there that make people a little bit nervous. But the overarching point is that stocks may be up, maybe they're up too much, but they can go up a lot more before something happens that takes them sort of catastrophically to the downside. That's right. I mean, uh, you know, in 99, which I, I was an analyst for almost seven years at that point, one of the things that was very different back then was, was capital was grossly misallocated. So much money went into fiber. So much money, I mean, people were leaving investment banks to join startups because they wanted to do the next pets.com. That was a huge misallocation of human capital and physical capital. That's not happened yet. We haven't had much of a CapEx cycle, and there hasn't been a misallocation of human labor because people are out of work. So I think it's too early to say we're misallocating capital, and that's the sign of a bubble top. Yeah. What do you think about that, Farmer Jim? I think he's exactly right. He said Pets.com. I was thinking about Webvan. They spent a billion dollars on a grocery distribution system and basically had no economic return from it. But you look at the leadership in the S&P 500 right now, 23% are the top five names. Those are not only highly profitable companies, but they're growing their profits very rapidly. For most of them, if I look at Microsoft, if I look at Apple, if I look at Google, they're like 29 times forward earnings. I'm going to tell you that's attractively priced in a 1% 10-year environment. So when people say this looks like 1999, it's not it, there. It's a question of degree. I mean, yes, there is some M&A activity going on, but it's not like when Time Warner bought AOL. Um, yes, there is some IPO activity, but it's not the everyday frenzy that occurred in 1999. So some ebullience and definitely concentrated in the software stocks. But the market overall does not look like 1999. Tom, what's the what's the straw that breaks the camel's back and causes this correction that you see coming? Is it? Um, a, a burst of, of some sort of rise in the 10-year the, the note yield beyond 1% that just causes the, an initial pause, or a rotation? Or what is it? Yeah. Um, so, Scott, there's a couple things. One is, uh, and we have it in our outlook piece, you know, we use the 30-year uh, minus 10-year yield curve spread as a leading indicator for the PMIs. It's led the PMIs by 16 months reliably since 2009. It's telling us that PMIs probably start to get close to the low 50s by mid-year. I think that's going to freak people out because they think the cycle's peaked. And it, it is going to be a head fake because the yield curve now is steepening. But I think the second sort of factor that could be uh, causing this headwind is a setback on, on this vaccine rollout. Because, you know, we, we do want to make sure this vaccine is safe. And I think people are going to be hypersensitive next year to any story about allergic reactions or or logistics issues, or even non-approvals, or some country reporting some setback. And I think that is the kind of thing that could cause a correction. So I think it's either economic or COVID-related. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that is potentially the biggest upset to your backloaded, really rampant stocks of, of say, 25%. If something logistically goes wrong with the vaccine, you're going to have to rethink the, the pace 
of, of the reopen. I mean, it makes obvious sense. Tom, it's always good to talk to you. Happy holidays. I'm not sure we'll yeah. see you before the end of the year. And if we don't, you have a good one. We'll see you on the other side. Thanks. You too. All right. That's Tom Lee. Been great having him with us and guiding us through these markets all throughout this year, a year he has called it uh, largely correctly. All right, guys. Bank of America, I want to go through a number of other stocks. Bank of America is out today with their annual 11 stocks for 2021, basically a top pick from each sector. Josh, I come, I come to you. I think this is Savita who does this work, and she lays out uh, a number of, of stocks. Let's go through. And some of them are going to make, make obvious sense, and, and maybe some of them not so much. Disney, Hilton, Walmart, Chevron, Allstate. I think we can put these up for you. HCA Holdings, Alaska Air, Jimmy, Corvo, Vale, Realty Income, Nextera Energy. Best ideas from each of the sectors that are out there. Josh, you want to take a stab first? Well, you know what's not in there. There's no cloud computing. There's no um, B2B workplace software. Um, and there's no social media. Um, so, I, so, like, and that's not to say that um, those stocks can't work. But clearly, uh, the quantitative work that they're doing suggests that given the environment going in next year, the stocks that'll work will be much more cyclical and much more reopen oriented. And we'll see if that ends up being right. But um, I do think it's been important uh, to have that in your portfolio. Let's talk Disney. This is a stock that I think is the most emblematic of the frustration of the bears uh, in this market right now. More so than, like Snowflake doesn't anger the bears because they see that for what it is. It's just a a bubble and a bubble type stock. Um, Disney is, I mean, this company is, half the company's not operating. Like literally, the parks have been closed the whole year. ESPN didn't have sports for six months. And this stock is not just back to where it was in February. It's now broken broken loose of, of, of the atmosphere heading into orbit. And if you're someone that's looking at the state of the economy and then trying to make sense of Disney, you literally can't. And the biggest insight to that is that if you're a bull on Disney now, you understand that you got here because of Disney Plus. But to Savita's point, um, next year, you're not losing Disney Plus, but you're gaining back the parks. You're gaining back box office and movie theaters. You're gaining back full-fledged um, ESPN uh, activity. So like that's, that's the type of stock that I think is so emblematic of why it's been so hard to bet against the market this year. Um, now, if Disney hadn't launched Plus prior to the pandemic, which they just got in under, uh, you know, by a hair uh, last, last December, if they hadn't done that, I don't know where this stock would be. But that's an alternate universe we can't visit. The one that we're in, everything that they did ended up working out really well for the environment we've had to live with. And now we're going to get back to normal and Disney should rock. Brenda, you own Disney as well. And, and to build on what Josh was saying about the, the genesis of why these picks were made in each specific sector, Bank of America says the stocks align with their themes for the, for the year ahead. Value over growth, small over large, cyclicals over, over defensive and ESG, plus factors such as positioning, our analyst 2021 earnings outlooks and cons- versus consensus, and more. Brenda? Yeah, I mean, I would agree. You know, if you look at the S&P, kind of beyond the top five, five names, they're still 
almost 200 names that are down on the year. So there are still a lot of opportunity, and I would agree with everything that Josh said about Disney. I mean, this is to step into these reopening plays, you have to be willing to step into a business uh, that is not uh, that is depressed in many ways. Um, but Disney, we think, is incredibly unique in that not only did they launch Disney+, Plus, but they've done a lot of very smart things to drive uh, subscriber growth. And we also think that um, at a certain point in time, we are going to hit a little bit of an air pocket in terms of new content that comes out just because of the impact of COVID. And that's where I think Disney, again, kind of shines because their content is so timeless um, and the primary um, uh, 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 viewer um, are children who are willing to watch the same thing over and over again and never tire of it. So I think that's also a really important piece in our view of the Disney story and just what makes the company uh, so valuable. Um, and so then throwing in the potential or the eventual recovery um, and likely pent up demand for something like the parks business just mm -hmm. makes it even more attractive. Doc, Disney calls, you got Walmart stock, you've been watching Vale. I think you have those calls too. Yeah, I do, Scott. Like all three, um, and Disney, uh, I think Josh would agree, even though the counterfactual is tough. I think if Disney did not have Disney Plus, this stock would have been below 100 for a much longer period of time, and the recovery wouldn't be to 170, where it is now, 172. It would be to probably 120, right. Scott. Um, and, and, you know, because this has saved them, the growth there has been extraordinary. Um, as far as growth also on those, uh, some of the rebuilding plays, Scott, like Freeport, like Valet, like Cliffs, um, I like all of those still. Um, that's an area I think you could stick with as well as, of course, home builders, but that's not part of this note. So I'll say, yeah, Valet, love it. It's got unusual activity again today. Doc, quickly tell me also why you've sold Roku calls, which shares are up 42 percent in all the right. last month. I see it's a move you just made, so I want to yeah. talk to you about that. Sure. Well, Scott, I was lucky enough to be in this one for a very long time. Jim knows that because he's one of the guys that talked me into it. Um, it's up $110 since November 18th, Scott. I have rolled six times as this thing has run to the upside. Finally, I just got to say with my outlook, with Tom Lee's outlook, that I think I'd be able to pick it up cheaper in the first quarter of next year. So since this is a non-taxable account that I'm trading in, I'm more than willing to take that profit and just let it go. Um, I'll try not to look at it if this is a 400 or $450 stock, Scott, but I think I'll be able to pick it up back in the 250 to 270 range. That's why I sold it today. Okay, cool. We'll take a quick break. Coming up, a bullish call in the banks from noted analyst Mike Mayo. We're gonna debate that with the investment committee. We'll do it next. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. I'm Dominic Chu, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. The U.S. has now more than 17 million confirmed cases of COVID-19. Yesterday, new cases set a new record of nearly a quarter million. The daily death toll also reached a new high of more than 3,600. 
President-elect Joe Biden has reportedly picked Michael Regan to head the Environmental Protection Agency. Regan is currently the North Carolina top environmental regulator. He also spent 10 years at the EPA during the Clinton and George W. Bush administrations. The NBA Foundation has announced the first $2 million worth of grants aimed at spurring economic empowerment in black communities. The league has promised at least $300 million will be given out by its new foundation. And Russian President Vladimir Putin holding his annual news conference and accusing the United States of starting a new arms race, which has forced Russia to develop hypersonic weapons, he says in response. That is your CNBC News update at this hour. Scott, I'll send things back over to you. And we appreciate that, Dom. Thank you very much, Dom Chu. Let's get to Meg Terrell now. She has breaking news on Pfizer. Meg? Hi, Scott. Well, a statement just coming out from Pfizer about its COVID-19 vaccine production. They are saying they are trying to address public comments that allege there are issues in the production and distribution of the company's COVID-19 vaccine, uh, saying, quote, Pfizer is not having any production issues with the vaccine. No shipments containing the vaccine are on hold or delayed. This week, they say we successfully shipped all 2.9 million doses that we were asked to ship by the U.S. government to the location specified by them. They say we have millions more doses sitting in our warehouse. But as of now, we have not received any shipment instructions for additional doses. Now, guys, this statement comes after we've been hearing from states this week that their allotments of the Pfizer vaccine may have been cut, four states saying by at least 30 percent over the next couple weeks. Now, Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, yesterday made a statement saying that its next two week shipments from Pfizer are on hold. And according to the Tampa Bay Times, he attributed that to Pfizer production issues. So Pfizer is saying here it has no production issues. The amount of Pfizer doses allotted to go out each week so far this week were 2.9 million. Next week uh, are just 2 million. Uh, and if Moderna gets uh, authorized today or tomorrow or Saturday, 5.9 million doses of Moderna's will go out next week. But of course, we've been hearing that there should be enough vaccine for 20 million people within December. Uh, Operation Warp Speed uh, has put that out there. And an HHS spokesperson tells me that is still the plan. Uh, but Scott, this confusing information coming from the state level uh, and with Florida saying it's because of Pfizer production issues, Pfizer says that is not the case. And in fact, it has more vaccine ready to go than is being directed by the government right now. Well, Back over to you. And speaking of, I mean, some of the, the confusion has come from the, the government itself. C- can you explain again what Secretary Azar, uh, HAS Secretary, was talking about yesterday when he said that Pfizer was being, and I think the word he used was secretive, uh, about some of its production process as it relates to uh, shortages of maybe raw materials and things of the like, Meg? Yeah, there are are some combative language being sort of used here, and it seems between Pfizer and between HHS. Um, The issue is this story that Pfizer had offered its second quarter allotment of vaccine doses to the U.S. government before it sold them to other countries. Um, Now, the government and Operation Warp Speed has disputed that they were made a formal offer Uh, But now Pfizer says it has 100 million doses it could deliver to the U.S., but not until the third quarter. The government wants them in the second quarter. They are talking about using the Defense Production Act to try to speed up the procurement of those doses, helping them get raw materials and things like that. And the question is, why haven't they used it yet? Uh, And Secretary Azar has said that Pfizer is being secretive about its manufacturing needs. Now, Albert Borla, the CEO of Pfizer, was on with us on Monday morning, and he said that some raw materials are running at critical 
supply and that it would be great if the government used the Defense Production Act to help them. So there is some back and forth going on here. We know that they're working on hammering out that supply deal for the second quarter doses. And there is some information swirling out there in the states thinking their allocations are getting cut. And Pfizer says it's not because of their production. Yeah. Well, good to have you here to, to explain all of it uh, because it's confusing sometimes and it changes by the hour, if not the day. Meg, thanks so much as always. That's our Meg Terrell. Let's move now, talk about that call from Mike Mayo, the influential banking analyst at Wells Fargo. He has a very bullish note today on the banks. He goes, Bank of America, raise price targets for Bank of America, City, Goldman, and J.P. Morgan. Big ownership across the board. Farmer Jim, you've got Goldman Sachs. Mayo goes to 250, from 255 to 310. From 255 to 310. Do you want to take that Goldman one? Uh, sure. <clears throat> and I'll use Goldman just as a microcosm of the whole space. The, the, I said it earlier, the market looks forward six months. Here's what it sees. It sees slightly higher interest rates. It sees loan loss reserves that get reversed. And don't take my word for it, okay? Talk to Jamie Dimon on the last earnings call. I know this is J.P. Morgan, not Goldman Sachs, but on the last earnings call, he said, if those vaccines come out sooner than we think, then we've over-reserved. And lastly, for Goldman and for all of them, this is what the market sees. Six months from now, the Fed is likely to greenlight share buybacks. All of those reasons are why these stocks are on the march. You cannot wait for that news to come out. When, by the time it comes out, the move is already done. Those are the rules, all right? It's written on the inside of the box. <laughs> well, I was going to ask, you know, how much of the move, Josh, has, has already been made? You have, you have J.P. Morgan. Mayo goes from 130 on JPM to 144. I, ho I hope he's right. I think uh, what, what's made the banks very tough to be involved with is the way in which a lot of their gains happen like overnight. Like these are not stocks that are trending, trending, trending. Um, they don't at all act like the growth stocks that have been so easy to ride this year. Um, the banks like you could get a one week stretch where 80 percent of the year's uh, returns take place. And if you're not in them that week, there's really no opportunity to be in after. And if you sold them just before out of frustration, like you, you waste a lot of your time. So I always tell people the way they think about the bank stocks, think about them as total return vehicles. What's the dividend yield? What's the likely uh, buyback total for the coming year? Um, and then just try to, try to say to yourself, like, if you do get that kind of 20 or 30% rally, which we just got yeah. with a lot of these names compressed into a very short period of time, think about that almost like a cherry on top. In the meantime, they are extremely overcapitalized. Uh, most of the strategists that I read are thinking about uh, a 10-year treasury that's one and a quarter to one and a half percent next year as the economy reopens. We already heard from the Fed yesterday they're going to keep pushing down on that overnight rate. They don't control the 10-year. <laughs> so if you get that, you get zero percent short-term rates. You get something over one percent, even close to one and a half percent on the 10-year. Then you've got some money for banks to make here. And all of them will work to varying degrees. The asset managers will work. The big banks, regionals should work. So I think you could be in them. I'm not doing anything with my J.P. Morgan. But I would just point out, if that's your only financial exposure, you're missing the big picture. The world is being transformed overnight. New high, square, it's now worth uh, $25 billion PayPal, more than Goldman Sachs. Um, PayPal record high today. Like, if you're just in the banks as your, quote, financial services exposure, 
you're missing out on not an evolution, but an absolute revolution. So think about owning some of those payments names, too. Yeah. Doc, you're, you're my guy on the, on the banks, at least on, on today's show. You own Bank of America calls, J.P. Morgan stock, Cap One calls, Wells Fargo calls. You know, Mayo goes Bank of America. His old, he only goes up by three bucks from 35 to, to 38. He goes from city 66 to 74. Right. Well, and, and I own those payments that Josh just spoke to as well, Scott. Um, I love the sector, and boring in this case is fantastic. I'm short the 125 calls out in January against J.P. Morgan. You're collecting in the neighborhood, Scott, of 27%. If you only do that 10 times a year, because you know they're trading between $2.50, Scott, and $3. If you only do that 10 times this year, you're collecting close to 25, 26% against that equity. That's a freaking gift. So uh, the charge-offs have been fantastic as far as they just reported Bank America and J.P. Morgan yesterday or the day before, I guess, uh, what the charge-offs were, the delinquencies and so forth. All of that is down, Scott, down and dramatically right. down, underestimates. So I think this continues to work. And that's why I'm long so many of them. All right, we'll come back. We got more with John with unusual activity. That is straight ahead. We'll get his trades there in just two minutes. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. Unusual activity. Doc, you got some in, in a couple of stocks that are all bulled up lately. Oh, yeah. Snap. Uh, that one in particular, Scott. Stocks right around 53 bucks a share. They're buying the February 60 calls in big numbers, Scott. So I had to follow them in there. Why? Because this stock's up 228%. Much rather buy these calls than buy the stock there. I'll probably be in these, you know, most of that two months. Second one, Scott, take a look at Penn Gaming right now. Stock was, I think, 88 bucks a share this morning when we saw this. They're December 31st expiration, so obviously last trading day of the year. They're buying there at the uh, 105 strike with the stock at 88 bucks. That's a leap. I'm not buying that leap. I'm instead buying the 90s and selling higher strikes against it. 
I'll be in that probably close till the end of the year, Scott. All right. Thank you for that, John and Jerry. And up next, NFL player and a member of CNBC's Financial Wellness Council, Brandon Copeland is back with us. His plan to help the underserved this holiday season. You'll want to see that when we're back right after this. Welcome back. CNBC has partnered with Acorns, the saving and investing app on a financial wellness and education initiative called Invest in You. Ready, set, grow. Our next guest, Brandon Copeland, linebacker for the New England Patriots, is also a member of the CNBC Financial Wellness Advisory Council. His foundation, Beyond the Basics, giving back to underserved families to help navigate the pandemic during the holiday season. It's good to see you again. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Uh, first off, how's the injury recovery going? I know a lot of people are thinking about you and what you're going through. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. It's going great, well ahead of schedule. So I'm excited getting that, that bionic arm ready, you know? <laughs> yeah, better than uh, you were before, we're sure. Um, just made Forbes 2021 30 under 30 sports list. Congratulations on that. And a lot of it for the work you're doing outside the lines, if you will, starting with Beyond the Basics and this December to Remember initiative. Can you tell me about it? Yes, 100%. So um, as you said, my, our foundation, Beyond the Basics, my wife and I, we started a few years ago. We typically, around this time of the year, take kids, underserved kids, into um, stores and in the, in the shopping outlets and give them $200 shopping sprees. And, and we've gotten friends from around the NFL to join us in that and, and doing it in their respective cities. But this year, of course, we've had to transition to the virtual space. Uh, so we were able to partner with Amazon and Zebra and the NFL to uh, to allow over 200 families to get online, uh, shop virtually, give them all $800 Amazon shopping sprees um, and, you know, totaling over $160,000 given away. And, and the biggest thing is we have 20 NFL players involved in this, guys who we're literally competing against on every Sunday, Monday, and Thursday, sometimes Tuesday, mm-hmm. uh, these COVID games. But ultimately, we're trying to give back and, and you know, put smiles on people's faces to end this uh, this uh, unprecedented year. Yeah, some teammates, the McCourty brothers I see are on the list, Devin and Jason uh, from your squad, uh, Kyle Van Noy, who I think was a Patriot and now who has moved on to Miami, Quandre Diggs. Um, we're looking, I, I would imagine that it wasn't a hard sell to get people to play ball with you on this. No, fortunately, you know, there's a lot of obviously there's a lot of uh, uh, humble and, and great guys in the NFL. But these guys in particular, are all we, we played together across paths at some point. Um, and, and these guys were were ready and willing, uh, jumping at the chance to, to do this. And, and I think the coolest thing about it is uh, obviously in the virtual space, you feel like you lose a bit of connection. But we actually were able to get to know the families that we were working with this year more than we were in the past and, and really got to find out uh, what this means to each of the families and, and get to know their stories and how they actually uh, made it to the point that they're at today. So You mentioned it earlier, such a different, uh, unprecedented kind of, of season, everything that all of you guys are, are dealing with. There's no fans in the stands. People are missing football. Um, what's, the, what's the conversation in the locker room about how this all has gone this year and how the league has done dealing with it? Yeah, yeah, I think to be it, it's been clearly this has been a learn as you go process and I think that there's sometimes where as players, you know, you look at it and you think, well, you know, how did you guys come to this decision when a few weeks ago you guys made a different decision for another team or another game, but overall when you look at it, I mean, I do not envy the decision makers in in <laughs> this scenario and I think, you know, the fact that we have not 
missed games to this point just, you know, means that, that we're doing the right thing and um, they're finding ways to protect us and keep us as safe as possible, given all the circumstances. Well, you and your family have a good holiday. We're proud of you. We're proud to partner with you on Acorns, and we will talk to you again in the new year. I am certain of that. Sounds good. Happy holidays. All right. Thank you very much. That's Brandon Copeland. Thanks for all of his good work with Beyond the Basics Foundation. Want to recognize him as one of our holiday homegrown heroes as well. And if you know someone going above and beyond for others this holiday season, you can nominate them as a holiday homegrown hero today. You can go to CNBC.com slash homegrown heroes for that. We hope you will do just that. Coming up, silver prices are up 8% just this week. We're going to find out how the futures traders are playing that move. We'll do it next. Time for the futures outlook. Silver hitting its highest level since September. Let's bring in Brian Stutland of Equity Armor Investments for the trade. There it is. One week, almost 9%. Can't keep up that pace, can we? It's crazy, Scott. But, I mean, when I listened yesterday and I hear the Federal Reserve say that interest rates are going to be at zero till 2023, I mean, are you kidding me? It's ridiculous. It's crazy. So, to me, the $1 bill is going to zero, if that's possible. And people are clamoring to things like gold, silver, Bitcoin. Obviously, Bitcoin is the most volatile. I own a little bit of that, but that's going to be more volatile. Gold has seemed to sort of lag in participation. That's why I'm kind of playing silver here, Scott. I think there's still more upside. Look at the chart here. If we close at this level, Scott, we're going to kind of break out to the upside. So if I'm playing that and I want to own silver, I can own it in a regular account. I don't need some esoteric Bitcoin account to do that. I own a silver futures contract. I'm looking to buy the March future 2610 if it pulls back a little bit here and looking for it to play up to 2695. I'd put a stop at 25.25. That's sort of the downside technical level where I'd want to be stopped out here. And I'm basically risking 42.50 to make 42.50. I know it's a one-to-one payout, but the technical chart breakout here looks fantastic as if there's going to be more of a move to the upside, Scott. We will see. Thank you, as always, for the trade. Brian Stutland, we will talk to you soon. Final trades coming up next. Final trade time. Brenda, you're up first. Booking Holdings, this is an asset light business model that's poised to really benefit from a recovery in leisure, travel, and dining. Stocks had a nice move recently, but still only up 2% for the year. So right. I think it's worth a look. All right, especially as we uh, look to the other side of the pandemic. Thank you very much. Farmer Jim. Uh, Viacom CBS, Judge. Uh, this stock has recovered really nicely off the March lows, and it just did a little consolidation period and is now ready to march higher. Okay. TRB, the reformed broker? Uh, Shaq is talking to analysts about ghost kitchens. They're using them in London. This will facilitate many, many more digital orders. I think the stock gets to 100 bucks. I'm long. Things been on a, on a run, too, up, up nearly 5%. You've, you've looked at that as a, a post-pandemic play, too. Definitely. Yeah. All right, Doc, wrap it up for us. Cree, Scott, uh, the stock's doubled this year, and I see more upside next year. Okay, good stuff. Uh, everybody's in the green today. Cree up nearly six. Thank you so much for watching. We'll see you tomorrow. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range, 
and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.